Hello, this is The World in 10, which brings you the big news stories of the day, explained and analysed by The Times of London. I'm Toby Gillis. And I'm Lou Newton. And today, exactly one month on from the start of the war between Israel and Hamas, we'll be analysing how we got here and exactly what the current state of play is. Just one month ago, this. This is the air raid siren alert. Every ping that you hear is another air raid siren. Simply all of Israel, except for the north, right now is under active missile attacks. Israeli civilians in their houses whispering uh, messages, asking the army to please come and help them. People who have been taken hostage, people who have been killed. The people of Israel are under attack orchestrated by a terrorist organization, Hamas. In this moment of tragedy, I want to say to them and to the world and to terrorists everywhere that the United States stands with Israel. On the 7th of October, Hamas fighters stormed the border that separates Gaza and Israel and murdered 1,400 Israelis. They kidnapped a further 240 and took them back to Gaza. For those still unreleased, little is known about where they are or how they're being treated. One of those is an 85-year-old Holocaust survivor, Yaffa Adar. She was seen being taken away on a golf cart. Her granddaughter, Adva Adar, told Times Radio seeing other hostages being released made her fear even more for her grandmother's welfare. The Hamas are much cleverer than the credit we're giving them. And uh, it makes me think that if they let them go and not my grandmother, uh, is her condition is uh, too bad that they can let her go because they don't want the world to see how severe the situation is. Uh, does it mean that uh, she hasn't survived it? I, I pray every day thinking about her having, having to suffer in tunnel in Gaza, thinking that, that this is the last uh, month, the last hours of her life, that she will die there slowly, painfully, alone. Israel's response to the attack has been a near-constant bombardment of Hamas-governed Gaza. The group operates in a network of tunnels, and they've built those under civilian infrastructure in the occupied territory. And those are key for Israel's defence force in its ground operations, although rockets which they say have been used to target them have now killed over 10,000 people. That's according to the Hamas-run health ministry. But the majority of those who have been killed are thought to be civilians, more than 4,000 of which are children. And it's not just airstrikes causing chaos in Gaza. Israel also controls all but one of the crossings into the territory. So no one can leave and very little food and medical aid can enter. And Israel's cut the fuel and electricity supply to the territory too. And the water supply remains incredibly limited. The Benjamin Netanyahu government hasn't yet defined an endgame for Gaza. Israel's military objective is that Hamas must be destroyed. But when they feel that job is done... What then? Here's the Times' Richard Spencer on what Gaza's future may look like. There are all sorts of theories, fencing off Gaza, having a buffer zone around Gaza, keeping security code of Gaza while some local civilian administration works with the Israelis. It's hard to see how 
the Palestinians would ever accept that in the long term. You know, what America says is going to be very important. Was America going to demand as a um, compensation, if you like, for the stick that Biden has taken for supporting Israel? Is he going to say, OK, well, we support you in this bombing campaign. Now you have to participate in some process that will finally lead to the establishment of a Palestinian state. From one war to another now, this is depressing, isn't it? Because uh, for a lot of the last almost two years, there's been huge debate about the US's involvement in the situation in Ukraine. Is it spending too much on support for the country? Should it encourage negotiation with Russia? And what does a Ukraine victory actually look like? And much of that debate has been created because of a potential second term by Donald Trump in the White House. He's often been asked his thoughts and he said he doesn't see it in terms of winning or losing, but in terms of lives lost. And he recently avoided answering if he'd continue funding Ukraine's efforts by saying he'd end the conflict in 24 hours if he were president again. Today, The Times has published an exclusive interview with Commander Matt Dimmick. So he's the former Trump White House's Russia director, who has had a go at predicting just what the policy would be going forward should he get back into the Oval Office, and also what a disaster it would be for both Ukraine and the US if that simply involved cutting all funding. It's kind of a paradox because, you know, for all of Trump's desire to be a close friend to Putin, the Trump administration actually was very tough on Russia when it came to policies and sanctions. So it's really hard to predict where he would come down on that. You know, there are some other checks and balances that a Trump administration would have to face. I know when I was there, you know, Congress had its Russia policy and it put in a lot of handcuffs to keep Trump from his own worst, worst instincts. But not supporting Ukraine is the precipitating factor that leads to those uh, long, costly potential wars with Russia. If we don't, then... Uh, Ukraine does not have the support they need, then it opens up the possibility to all kinds of dangerous future contingencies that will make the $50 billion that we're currently spending on on Ukraine look like a drop in the bucket, not to mention the the thousands of casualties, the blood that would need to be spilled, and the specter of a nuclear exchange as well. You know, for pennies on the dollar, that's the biggest investment in our national security that I think we have ever had, and we'd be foolish not to continue investing in that. Sounds like Trump would have to think hard about the consequences of stopping Ukraine's funding then. Mind you, Toby, it wasn't only Trump who commanded Dimmick directed his eye towards. <laughs> no, um, his assessment of the current state of play is mind-blowing too. The US, and in fairness most of the rest of the world, have slowly drip-fed weapons to Ukraine, haven't they? So that's infuriated Zelensky, of course. And Commander Dimmick told us he simply can't understand that policy by... President Biden claiming they would never make American troops prove they can use like a lesser weapon without causing a world war before then kind of letting them use the next more powerful one. The interview with Commander Dimmick was done by the Times' man in Ukraine, Maxim Tucker. You can read it in full on the website now. Now, last month, Kenya's Kelvin Kiptum shattered... Nice alliteration. (laughs) Thank you. He shattered the men's marathon world record. That's thanks to Nike's clever so-called super shoes. It's all part of how sports brands are using science to get a sporting edge. But now the sportswear giant's gone a step further. 
a first step further. <laughs> See what you've done there? <laughs> Launching a shoe for babies. Yeah, it's controversial because it's widely advised in the Western world that babies should learn to walk in barefoot or socks. The shoe does have the seal of approval from the American Podiatric Medical Association, although advice on children's footwear issued by them also says that babies' feet should be unrestricted and that infants don't need to wear any kind of shoe because they can restrict movement and also prevent normal toe and foot development. Well, of course, Nike's defending the shoe and we're fascinated to see if parents buy into the idea or stick to the age-old advice. But I suspect there'll be quite a few sales because they're very cute. Rarely can a business decision be worse than for a celebrity determined to win over a massive new set of fans than to turn up wearing entirely the wrong thing. Yet for one band, it might have worked in their favour because they've now got two new armies of fans. Yes, this is the tale of quick-thinking PR, essentially, because last month, K-pop girl group Stacey turned up in Dallas for a gig and we think, at least, they were hoping their chosen attire was to wear a Texas Rangers jersey. It's a crisp white kit with blue writing and a wise choice for a city so supportive of its Major League Baseball team. Except... Somewhere in the planning, something went wrong. And they ended up wearing the bright blue of Glasgow Rangers. They are the glitteringly successful football team from the Scottish city, which at best confused those who were there to watch them. (laughs) So how do you turn that to your advantage? You take a trip there too, of course. Of course. <laughs> and after wowing in Texas, Stacey have now been to Glasgow Rangers Stadium, meeting the fans who, let's face it, had definitely never heard of them until the gaff stateside. That's styling it out far better than when I went to a fancy dress party as Screech from Saved by the Bell and um, nobody could tell I was in fancy dress at all. <laughs> Sad times. <laughs> I think that's all we need to hear about that. Thank you, Toby. <laughs> which is lucky, as we're now out of time. We are. Thank you for your time today. Those were the top world stories in 10 with the Times of London.